I think COP26 is a huge opportunity to inspire individuals. So I think actually if we see leadership making these commitments and actually actioning the pledges that we've made, it will inspire a generation to go and make those differences themselves. And I think if we do that, that then follows through into work and allows us to work inside our values. And when we're working in the the building and the construction sector, it will mean that we can have those open and honest conversations with our clients, challenge people, inspire them, openly encourage them to achieve net zero carbon. And actually, even if it's not completely achievable at the moment, go as far as possible because doing something is better than doing nothing. Welcome to a very special episode of Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And this podcast is being broadcast ahead of the UK, hosting the most important climate change conference in the world. The Conference of Parties 26, or COP26 as it's better known, to be held this year in Glasgow in Scotland. For this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to find out how the buildings industry can support the UK in lowering its greenhouse gas emissions. Doing this is critical if we are to stop generating more emissions than we absorb, a target known as net zero by 2050, and achieve the national reductions required under the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement is a legally binding international treaty on climate change. This is Annabel Clark. I'm an Associate Director in Faithful and Gould, part of the Atkins and SNC-Lavalin business. I work in our consult team, which focuses on asset management strategies for delivering efficient buildings. And my specific focus is looking at making buildings more sustainable and looking at how we help clients to put buildings on their net zero carbon journey. Annabelle explains that the Paris Agreement was adopted by 196 countries at COP21 in 2015 in Paris. The overall goal is to limit global warming to well below two degrees, but preferably to one and a half degrees Celsius or below, compared to pre-industrial levels. That is an absolutely mammoth task. Mammoth, because it requires a fundamental restructuring of global energy use, as well as commitment from every single country to lower its carbon emissions. To achieve this, each of the 196 countries agreed to a nationally determined contribution, which is basically a local target for reducing emissions. So we have nationally determined contributions. And referring back to COP26, the hope is that these will be tightened even further in Glasgow. That gives us each, I guess, a carbon budget that we need to work towards on a national basis. And that is from the top down. But where we can each make a difference is from the bottom up. And it's all of those smaller pieces that are added together that will make up our national contribution and feed into that overall benchmark. One of the most impactive sectors is the built environment, which is itself made up of lots of smaller pieces. From high-rise commercial buildings in major cities that host the world's biggest organisations, to homes in villages and remote parts of the countryside, all have a role to play in reducing emissions. Now, the World Green Building Council states that 
Together, building and construction are responsible for almost 40% of all carbon emissions in the world, an absolutely staggering figure, with operational emissions, so those the energy used to heat, cool and light buildings, accounting for 28%, and the remaining 11, approximately 11%, coming from embodied carbon emissions, or upfront carbon, that's associated with materials, the construction, the transport processes throughout the whole building life cycle. 40% of global emissions is indeed a staggering number, given that globally the world produced over 34 billion tonnes of carbon in 2020. This is according to the Carbon Budget and Trends Report 2020 of the Global Carbon Project. This was actually a 2.5% decline on the 2019 figure due to the reduction in transport demand that characterised the global COVID-19 pandemic. But it still shows that buildings are responsible for 13.6 billion tonnes of carbon every year. So buildings, the construction sector, have a huge part to play in decarbonising the world and us meeting our climate change challenge and reducing global warming nationally and globally. To do that, as building professionals, we all have a responsibility to inspire the people that we work with, inspire our clients to go on that net zero carbon journey, but also present the possibilities and the opportunities that they can take and really making net zero carbon easy and visible. The role of buildings is really very important for several reasons and in different ways. This is Julie Godfroy, Head of Sustainability at the Chartered Institution of Building Services Engineers. As Annabelle says, the emissions come from a variety of sources, from a building's energy use to carbon embedded in building materials. But Julie says there's another issue that's particularly critical for the UK building stock. Buildings are a very, very large user of heat and that a very large part of that heat comes from gas. And it's true in many countries, but compared to most OECD countries, the UK and especially UK homes are very heavily reliant on gas boilers, more than most OECD countries. So around 85% I think of homes rely on gas which means that either we need to find another way to heat them or gas to, needs to decarbonize. There are alternatives, but this won't be an easy transition. The hope is that, and the scenarios are, that uh, a very large proportion of buildings and homes will move to heat pumps. But that would be coupled with heat networks, potentially in small, very energy efficient buildings, a little bit of direct electric heating. So more varied, but with heat pumps playing a big role. Just this month, the UK government announced its heat and building strategy, where it launched a £450 million boiler upgrade scheme that would make grants of £5,000 available to homeowners who want to switch from gas boilers to heat pumps. This would be part of what it described as a gradual shift away from gas boilers. It also committed to making major decisions on the use of hydrogen for heat instead of natural gas by 2026. Reducing demand for both electricity and for heat is another measure that could reduce emissions. 
certainly what we see a lot are the massive opportunities first before any physical intervention through energy management. So before any extensive retrofit or new system, very clearly a lot of non-domestic buildings are not operating as efficiently as they could for all sorts of reasons. This is critical because according to the World Green Building Council, 80% of the buildings that exist in 2050 are already here. So the big challenge for the built environment is to retrofit its buildings to lower their emissions. When you have an existing building, the embodied carbon that you've already spent to build that building, that's already happened. I guess there's not a lot that we can do about that. And so it's the operational emissions that we want to focus on within them. And we want to look at that in a hierarchy. So we want to look at that through energy efficiency, decarbonising heat, and then decarbonising power, and then dealing with any residual emissions as a last attempt, so through carbon offsets. But absolutely, we want to focus on reducing the energy demand of a building first. But you can't reduce demand until you understand the carbon emission profile of a building. And this is where a lot of building owners need help. Some major property owners don't even know what buildings they own, let alone what their carbon footprint is. So, first and foremost, how do you make carbon visible? Stuart McLaren is the Net Zero Director for Infrastructure at Atkins. Where is my carbon? Where does it come from? And so, First and foremost, how do you make carbon visible? You know, how do we help our clients understand their assets, the systems, their portfolio, its current performance, create a baseline for them so that they can be really deliberate then in collecting, managing and analysing data? And that's often something they just don't have. It's the data. And, and interestingly, it's not so much about them not just having it, they may have it, they may not even know they have it. They don't even know where the data is coming from or how to store it, how to manage it. And so for me, first off, let's make carbon visible so that people can make really deliberate insights to enable informed decision-making. The next stage is to understand which carbon reduction investments will make the biggest difference. So if you're investing in decarbonisation, how do you ensure you're spending your money in the, in the wisest places possible? Where do you get the maximum bang for buck? To do that means accessing the right information at the right time to inform the business case. Because if you can't fund this, it doesn't happen. So how do we help our clients be able to build those cases for investment to do the good work? Once the investment is made, the new systems have to be integrated into the building systems so that this visible carbon is then managed effectively. This is going to be how do we take this view of carbon and just integrate it and, and make it part of their business as usual so that it is just an element of a more holistic approach to managing their assets. And once this is done, Stuart wants organisations to share their innovative ways of decarbonising their assets so that others can learn from it. And then I think lastly is an openness, you know, the challenge of, of being more open to new ways of working, new ways of operating, embracing new commercial models, new business models, defining new value systems, like where, what is the value we are seeking to deliver and being able to translate that into, particularly as a, you know, as a client organisation, what they buy, how they buy it, when they buy it. All of this adds up to a concept that Stuart describes as decarbonomics. 
which in practice starts with an exercise in benchmarking to capture the data needed to understand the carbon emissions of the building. Then the next step is analysing this data. Turning that data into those really distinct insights that can be presented in an incredibly intuitive way. Mindful that you've got multiple users of these things. It's not just one group or one person that interacts with this information. Only when you have all of this data can you then move into the delivery phase, where measures can be implemented to make the building more carbon efficient. And then really, once you've then got those analytics, those insights from the road mapping, it creates, in essence, your roadmap. You know, what do we need to do very much with, with, the, with the cost involved uh, and a clear view of cost to then say, well, look, how do we deliver? What does delivery look like? And then supporting clients through that delivery path. For instance, like the work we're doing with the government property agency now as their strategic partner, where we are supporting them as their delivery partner in the interventions for their portfolio. The government property agency is reducing the carbon emissions for 420 buildings over the next four years. They're actually looking to remove it's about 1300 gigawatts of energy out of their estate, uh, which is equivalent of saving annual electricity for about 370,000 homes. Peter Dunn is an associate director at Faithful and Gould, and he's working on the GPA's decarbonisation programme. So we've started looking at 24 buildings in the first year and then sort of growing to sort of 50, 56 buildings across the UK in the second year. And then that ramps up into the final, final three years of the programme. It starts with technical due diligence of the benchmarking and analysis work that the GPA has already done. And then that technical due diligence goes to a review that then the programme management team work with the GPA to, to agree on the intervention work that needs to happen for each building in that year. And then that moves into our supply chain management team who oversee the different levels of engagement for the interventions from complex projects to quite simple projects where you might be replacing light bulbs. Complex to simple projects and interventions broadly fall into four categories. The first is replacing the lights. Relamping lights to LED and putting PIR controls in. Light emitting diode lights are 90% more efficient than traditional incandescent bulbs, making this an easy win for building owners. Combining this with PIR controls means that these are only activated when there are people in the room, saving even more energy. The next major area of focus is in decarbonising the heating systems. Removing gas boilers and looking to install air, air source heat pumps and electric heat pumps and facilitating moving to more green energy supplies. And then there are the heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems to consider. There's HVAC as an intervention which is looking at the sort of HVAC systems, the chillers, the air conditioning units and optimising them through BMS, changing particular motors and pumps and fans appropriate to the different systems they have and then bringing in smart metering and controls in as well so they're getting better data on those systems. And then there is green energy generation and storage. And they're also looking at photovoltaic technologies, um, energy storage as well so those are the typical main ones and then 
the, the, yeah, the other one that is being reviewed is the building fabric uh, and what benefits can be done to existing buildings. So changing of windows, reducing leakage in, in the fabric of the building. Of all of these, Peter says it's the heating systems where he can see the biggest carbon savings. Well, the, big, the biggest impact typically is around the uh, air source heat pumps and uh, that technology that we're seeing more and more coming into buildings. For me, that's probably the biggest piece of work that we have to do for each, for each building that has that intervention, but also is a really exciting area because it's, it has such a big impact and people can benefit from that technology that's now becoming more and more mainstream. Air source heat pumps absorb heat from the air outside using a fluid that's then run through a compressor, which then transfers this heat to hot water circuits in the building. Peter says that what they are learning from the GPA work is that there are a lot of simple measures that building owners can take to save carbon straight away. I think the biggest, one of the biggest lessons learned so far is there are, there are opportunities, there are interventions for retrofit you can do now and we don't need to wait you know 10 years to do them so getting going is <laughs> it sounds sounds a bit silly but that's that's a big thing getting going in the commercial sector might make sense for owners of multiple properties where saving carbon isn't just the right thing to do it's also saving money in the long run what is a much bigger challenge is decarbonisation of the residential sector here is stuart again residentials where the really big challenge is particularly with heat power because of the logistical challenges but importantly the economical ones like who pays. Commercial, industrial and educational providers have the capacity to raise finance to implement emission saving measures but most homeowners don't. To get an idea as to the extent of the challenge Atkins has been investigating the scale and cost of the energy efficiency measures that are likely to be required across the country if we are to tackle decarbonising heat and power in our homes. I'm Ruth Hines and I'm a senior design researcher at Atkins. And my role is really to look at how we can improve the built environment through research and through design. One of the key figures that we're, that we're always looking at in the built environment sector is the fact that between 70 to 85% of the building stock that will exist in 2050 already exists. So in order for us to reach our decarbonisation goals by 2050, we really have to look at what the energy efficiency and the energy usage is in the current building stock. So in the UK, about 75% of all building stock is residential. That's calculated by floor area. Ruth and her team have been using energy performance certificate data for homes across the country to analyse their energy efficiency. Energy performance certificates are Certificates that are required by law for any buildings that are built now, sold or rented. Um, so it came in in about 2012 and so uh, not all buildings have an EPC but uh, quite a few, quite a lot do, so about 60% do. So we've been using that data to create heat maps of basically the building typologies, the energy efficiency of them and then kind of trying to understand what the scale of the retrofit challenge would be in different areas. EPC certificates give homes an alphabetic rating from A being the most efficient, so a fully insulated home producing its own power through photovoltaics, for example, to G being a home using expensive fuel, such as oil or liquid propane gas with little or no insulation. 
There is an ambition by the UK government to upgrade existing houses to EPC bands B or C by 2035. Currently, approximately 68% of buildings in England and Wales are D or below. So 68% of residential buildings would need to be retrofitted. Now, there's also an argument that that's not ambitious enough, that EPC bands of B and C won't actually get us to net zero by 2050. And what we should be aiming for is an EPC band of A. And that is highly ambitious. But if we were to take that, we're looking at approximately 97% of the building stock to be retrofitted. So it shows the scale. What's interesting about the findings is that there are trends emerging about the kinds of measures that would be needed to improve energy efficiency and hence the carbon emission profile of buildings around the country. So as an example, if we compared Manchester to Glasgow, approximately like 75% of, of homes or houses in Manchester are either detached or terraced. So the types of interventions that they would be looking at would be different from Glasgow because Glasgow has about 73% flats. So the typology is completely different. The interventions that you would have would be different. The cost associated to those are different as well, but also the kind of ownership and who is responsible for those would also change as well. And I think that's something that's really important is also looking at where you have uh, housing associations or housing developers that are responsible for larger developments and, you know, kind of where you can kind of look at the kind of increased capital cost at this stage and then assure a return on investment kind of going forward for them. Knowing the building types and the measures already in place means that for any location, this dashboard can be used to suggest appropriate carbon saving measures. So this research is really aimed at local authorities to help them understand the, the building stock in their area and to make decisions based on that. So they'll, most local authorities will have a net zero strategy that will include building the building sector in, in some way. So by looking at this, they can see whether, you know, for example, there's a large proportion of flats in, in the area. and um, Potentially, they might own and manage a large portion of those flats as well. And then what this aims to do is, is help to understand what the potential for those different interventions is. So is, is the most benefit going to come from, you know, insulating you know, all external walls and roofs? Is there a greater benefit for photovoltaics? Um, what the potential cost might be um, for that, but then also what are the long-term benefits and what the uh, payback period would be for that initial investment? And it is broken down into very detailed analysis with a figure of average carbon saved by pound spent. So, for example, there is a high return on LED bulbs. So there is 1.46 kilos of CO2 saved for every pound that is spent. Because as we know, LED bulbs are very efficient but also cheap to install. Other measures are more costly. So when you're installing PV, um, we found that it tends to be between 0.4 and 0.5 kilo of CO2 saved per, per pound spent. And obviously, of course, this is per year. So that, you know, the benefit of it will extend. Um, but it does show that there are some interventions that are quick wins, I guess, for want of a better word. 
Taking all of this into account means that the hard data is emerging as to what it will actually cost to retrofit the UK's residential stock. For example, looking at the data for Scotland tells us... So to retrofit to EPC rating of A, in Scotland we found the average cost would be between £18,000 and £35,000, which is higher than some other estimates but is related to the fact that we include quite a few different interventions in what we're looking at. So not just insulating a property, but changing the heating system and adding photovoltaics. This then translates to a carbon saving of somewhere between 120,000 and 380,000 kilos of carbon per property per year. With all this new data, the scale of the challenge for both residential and non-residential buildings is becoming increasingly clear, and it throws up new questions about how this can be funded. How can property owners be incentivised to make these changes? The public sector is beginning to implement emissions-saving work like that of the GPA with its 400 Buildings programme, and planning rules can be used to insist on energy efficiency in new construction. But for the private sector and individual homeowners, there are less incentives to make changes to existing buildings. But pressure is increasing on the UK to begin the most difficult work required to get us to net zero by 2050 and fulfil our commitments under the Paris Agreement. As the host of COP26, all eyes will be on the UK to see how it is inspiring action on climate change. Coming out of COP26, I'd love to see much better collaboration and commitment and a real drive from governments to reduce global warming and climate change. I think, unfortunately, there's a huge amount of lip service paid to decarbonising at a personal, a local and a national level. And to actually achieve these targets and make sure that we do hold ourselves to that one and a half degrees warming, there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done. So I think we need some really firm action and commitment from our leadership that will inspire generations to go on that decarbonisation journey. I think also governments need to be able to support those who will be undertaking those actions. So an increase in funding opportunities and helping people on that journey. So actually, as we've said at the start, making carbon visible, making it easy to decarbonise, providing access to those markets. And actually, where we don't yet have a solution, providing finance into research and development so that we can better understand how to solve this crisis. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was produced and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne. Co-hosting and editing was by me, Alex Conacher. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own net zero hero is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Atkins. Thanks for listening. Engineering Matters is on all podcast apps and you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. Twitter.